0: So I I wanted to uh, talk with you this morning a little bit about the mission of God and about how God's mission connects to this this whole capital campaign that we have as a church. So the name that we have given to our capital campaign is Our Moment, and I haven't really talked a little bit, I haven't talked much about the name that we've given our capital campaign, but uh, last night we were talking together about the name we gave our dog, and we have a lab pit super cool lab pit. He's kind of scary looking because he is part pit. And pit bulls, for many people, uh, they have biases against pit bulls. You know who you are. <laughs> and that's wrong. And um, but. uh But he's a lab pit, and because uh, when we were living in Albuquerque, we lived in a little bit of a more shady neighborhood, and, you know, we kind of wanted to, we had four children living there with us. We wanted a dog that looked a little bit scary, and he had a scary name. His name was Brutus. Uh, But then we moved to Sierra Madre, and uh, the name Brutus became a liability to us. (laughs) And so last night, we were talking about renaming Brutus to Pollyanna, actually. (laughs) And Anyway... But names do carry meaning. And the name of our capital campaign carries a meaning for us as a community. And the meaning is simply this. Uh, we believe that, that look, um, this church has a great heritage. It has a great past. We have so much to celebrate in the history of this church. And as part of our own heritage, we have been given a gift as a community. Uh, the properties that we have here we own outright, the buildings that we own, strategic, beautiful property right in the heart of this community. It has been given to us by generations who have made sacrifices before us. And so, on the one hand, we, we just we want to honor the past and we want to honor those who have gone before us. But you know, part of the way you honor the past is by taking hold of the future. And I don't know if you saw this movie uh, several years back, but it was called Pay It Forward. Anybody here seen the movie Pay It Forward? But it's pretty cool, you know. Um, it's all about this, this uh, kid who receives this great gift or whatever. And, and the thing is, is he's not supposed to pay it back. His, his, the gift became a burden, and now he needs to pay it forward. And really, part of the ways in which we honor our past is by paying forward the investments that they have made and by taking care of what has been entrusted to this church family, and by using it in strategic and effective ways for the mission of God. And so we want to say, look, now is our time. This is our moment to really take hold of the future that God has, had, has for us and to make investments that are critical now for the future of this church. And so that's kind of what this campaign has been all about. But what I want to do this morning is I want to connect this campaign really to the mission that Jesus has given his church. And arguably, the clearest, uh, the most straightforward place, the classic text defining the mission of the church is found in Matthew 28, and many of you will know it. It's known as the Great Commission. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can reach down and grab one of those. But here in this passage, Jesus gives us the mission for the church. You know, in the 90s, it was big for churches to try to clarify their mission. It was understood that this was a best practice in businesses. You know, businesses would flounder if they didn't clarify their mission. They needed to clear mission statements. And so churches all over the U.S. were going away on retreats, and they were hiring consultants, and they were trying to come up with creative expressions of their mission. And very often, churches would search, and they would search for for their mission. You know, what is our mission as a church? You know, and they would search for it, and it wasn't isn't even lost. The mission is given to us right here from Jesus in this in these words. He says this. It says all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so Jesus says, here is your vocation. Here is our mission at Christ church. He says, go and make disciples. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks exploring the riches, you know, kind of plumbing the depths of this passage. And there are so many, so many things we could talk about from this text. We could talk first about, you know, the universal scope of the mission. Notice what it says. Jesus says, "'Go and make disciples of all nations.'" Jesus's vision from the very beginning was a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-racial, multinational community of people. You know, it's fascinating going all the way back in the biblical story, uh, the biblical story, God's God's plan of redemption starts with one man who is built into one nation and they are heaped down with God's promises and God's blessings. But God's plan from choosing the one man and the one nation was always so that through this one man and this one people, God might bring his blessing, his riches to all of the families of the earth. And so a church that is living into the mission of God will more and more begin to reflect the multi-ethnic, multicultural nature of the mission that Jesus has given the church. And so we could talk about the grand scope of this mission. It is multinational, multiracial, it is multicultural. We could also talk about the great foundation of this this mission. You notice Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we could explore the many ways in which this passage echoes the words of the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 when the ancient prophet envisioned today When authority would be stripped from all of the beastly kingdoms of this earth, who exercise oppressive rule in God's world, that authority would be stripped from them and it would be given to a humane leader who would bring human flourishing to all of the families of the earth. And Jesus, after his resurrection, says, I am the humane ruler that God has brought into this world. Jesus has come to inaugurate a kingdom that would rule over all of the kingdoms of the earth, and his kingdom would be marked by justice and peace and mercy, and his, and his rule would actually result in human flourishing, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And so we could talk about, you know, the great foundation of this mission It is the authority of Jesus. We could also talk about the ultimate goal of this mission— You know, the church's mission, ultimately, what is it? It is to make disciples. It is to form a community of discipleship who are learning to do everything that Jesus has commanded us. And so the great goal of the church's mission is not simply to get decisions, but to make disciples. Uh, God's plan for his church is not that we would form communities of people who have large heads full of lots and lots of Bible knowledge, but rather that he would form communities that learn to practice the life-giving, sacrificial, counter-cultural, counter-intuitive way of Jesus in this world. God's commission is to go and make disciples. This is the great aim of the mission. We could also talk about the strong partner in this mission. And who's the strong partner? Well, Jesus says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. You know, we are called to go into all of the world and to make disciples of all the nations, and this is a daunting, audacious task, but we are not alone. Jesus says, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so this morning, we could talk about the scope of the mission. We could talk about the foundation of the mission or the goal of the mission or the partner in the mission, but... This morning, what I want to talk to you about is, is not really any of those things. You say, well, you just did. <laughs> I know, that was a trick. Um, but this morning, what I want to talk to you about are the agents of the mission. Who are the agents of God's mission? Notice what it says back in the text. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, who is this great commission given to? It is given to this small group, this small fledgling, floundering group of 11 disciples. There were supposed to be 12. 12 was the number of the family of God. There were 12 tribes of Israel. In the upper room on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers, a multiplier multiplier of 12. 12 is always symbolic of the community of faith, of the people of God. But here, they're even less than what they were supposed to be. There's only 11 because one has betrayed the master, Jesus. And this great commission is given to these 11 disciples. Now, I want you just to think with me about this. I don't know if you ever thought about how absurd these words must have sounded in the first century. I mean, it must have sounded utterly absurd. I mean, think for a moment just about where these words were spoken. It says that Jesus gathered his disciples on a mountain in Galilee. Well, where is Galilee? Well, Gal- Galilee was the venue of Jesus's earthly ministry. It was a very small, very rural region. You know, there were some larger cities not too far from that area, but Jesus never visited the larger urban centers of his day. Instead, Jesus does the bulk of his ministry around the rural kind of villages and communities surrounding this little lake community of Galilee. And then you say, well, where is Galilee? Well, Galilee is in Israel, and where is that? Well, I just want you to notice where this little strip of land is relative to the rest of the globe. So Israel is somewhere around the size of California, a little smaller. And Galilee is just a little tiny spot in that region. And Israel itself was really a small section in the larger Roman Empire, and it was not terribly significant, it was not terribly important, and certainly, Galilee would have been the utter backwoods of the entire Roman Empire. I mean, it would have been something like Bakersfield, sorry if you're from Bakersfield or Lancaster, or I don't, I was trying to come up with an analogy, I don't know if that was quite, where? Barstow. Barstow. Barstow, <laughs> Barstow. yes, of course. <laughs> But, but the point is, is that this was not a significant place. And, you know, Jesus never traveled very far outside of this region. And so he spent about three years of his, his life, he spent, you know, three years of earthly ministry, wandering around these spaces, preaching the gospel and living this compelling life and healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and welcoming outcasts to his table crossing all of the boundaries, uh, messing with the religious leaders. Jesus was this force around this region and he developed some followers there. But look, he didn't go very far outside of that arena. And ultimately he would travel down to Jerusalem where he would be taken and crucified as a common criminal. You know, and sometimes we think, you know, the cross is a very unique sort of thing in, you know, to Jesus. And of course, it is the unique symbol of Christianity. But in the ancient world, there was nothing unique about a crucifixion. In the ancient world, I mean, there were literally thousands and thousands of people who were crucified. Uh, Crucifixions littered the streets throughout the Roman Empire as a way of Rome saying, this is what happens to anybody who defies the authority of Caesar. And so here's Jesus who's never traveled much outside of this region, who's gone down to Jerusalem, who's been crucified by the authorities, dying the death of a common slave. Three days later, of course, God overturns the verdict of Caesar and he raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus then gathers his disciples on this mountain outside of Galilee. And he says, now... Now I want you to go and take this message of my resurrection and of all that it means. Go take the news of my kingdom, my healing, peaceable, justice-bringing kingdom for all the peoples of the earth. He says, now go and take this news to all nations. I really love this image of uh, this painting of um, the Great Commission, because if you could actually look at the faces of the disciples, they look a little bit worried. And they should be because this is a daunting task. You know, I remember reading a while back, there was a book, I think it was by a guy named John Collins. It was one of these, you know, leadership books. But in this leadership book, he talked about the importance of organizations setting what he called BHAGs, which were the big, hairy, audacious goals. Friends, this is the biggest, hairiest, audacious goal ever given in the history of the world right here. For Jesus to speak these words to this group group of, you know, Galileans who had gathered around them saying, look, I want you now to go and take this message to every people in every tribe and every nation throughout the world. Now, just also, let's just press this a little bit further. Think about who these people were. Now, on occasion, you know, sometimes in in human history, there is convened a gathering of leaders who are intellectually sharp and who are well-educated and well-connected and who have resources and affluence. I mean, you think about that first Continental Congress that gathered together, you know, the likes of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and all of these these great leaders, you know, together in one space, you know, who had influence and all that. And you can can kind of think, you know, sometimes there's a brain trust, you know, there's a group of power brokers and they come together and they can leverage all that they have in order to make a difference disproportionate impact for the size of the group. But that was not these disciples. These disciples were not the brain trust of the ancient world. Who were they? I mean, think about it. The, The majority of them came from one little village around the Sea of Galilee that probably had a population of no more than 200 people. It's not like, you know, the disciples were the cream of the crop. You know, they were common, in many cases, blue-collar workers, in some cases, religious zealots gone bad, you know, in other cases, uh, tax collectors and prostitutes, and and kind of like they were not the well-connected, the well-educated, the influential, and yet Jesus says to this group, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to use you to make disproportionate impact in human history— And, you know, this was always Jesus's plan from the very beginning. In in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable about a little mustard seed. And he said, when you look at that seed, it looks like the smallest of all of the seeds. But once it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all of the plants. And it ultimately becomes this large tree. And Jesus says, that is my kingdom. It is going to begin small and insignificant, but it is going to grow, and it's going to have a global disproportionate impact in the history of the world. Now, I can just imagine if Caesar and some of the senators uh, from Rome and some of the palace guard uh, from from, Rome, Rome would have gathered, kind of been eavesdropping in on this conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples. I mean, can you just imagine what they would have thought? They would have thought, who who does this guy think he is? All authority in heaven and on earth are given to you. You are crucified by the one who has true power and authority, Lord Caesar. And you want true power and You want to know who's really going to make an impact in human history. It is the Roman Empire. It is Caesar. And the words of Jesus to this small group of Galileans must have sounded absolutely absurd. But you know, on this side of human history, it no longer sounds absurd, does it? You know, I mean, just stop for a moment and just think with me about the global impact that this Jesus movement has had. I mean, this movement shook the world in the first century and it continues to shake it still. Now, of course, the church has never been totally faithful representatives of Jesus. Uh, The institutional church has always been half Christian at best, and sometimes we've been less than that. But the surprising thing really about church history is not the foibles and the failures of the church. That's to be expected of any institution that can human beings in their number. Amen? The real shock is not the foibles and the failures, the real shock is is the success of the global Christian movement. I mean, think about it. I mean, this movement has inspired other movements like the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement and social movements uh, that brought about schools and hospitals and orphanages. And it inspired artists, musical artists ranging from Bach to Bono and and visual artists ranging from Michelangelo to Van Gogh and architecture and philosophers and, and... thinkers and orphanages, all in Jesus' name, and political ideas like democracy and human rights and the equality and dignity in all people. And, and, and the narrative arc of all of our greatest stories has been inspired by the Jesus story. You know, I mean, you think about Iron Man or Harry Potter, and what are those stories about? It's about the story of sacrificial, self-giving love to defeat the powers of darkness and to save the friends of these heroes. What is that? It's the Jesus movement. And of course, the teachings of Jesus have been translated into far more languages than any, any other religious leader in the history of the world. You know, well over 3,000 languages. And there are people on every continent in the world that acknowledge Jesus as Lord. The largest movement in the history of the world is Christianity. The largest religion in the history of the world is Christianity. All following this Jesus. And you think about where it began. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I just think it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's because Jesus says, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And, you know, Jesus, he was always training his disciples for this task. And you saw this from the very beginning. He he, he said to his disciples, come to me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you know what he was saying? Come to me and I'm going to train you to carry on my mission in this world. And now at the end of his life, after Jesus has gone about training them And you think even about our series defining moments and all of the kind of like critical defining moments in their training and how it was preparing them for this mission. You know, last week we talked about the Good Samaritan crossing social and racial boundaries. And this was to train the disciples, look, this movement is going to go outside of your comfortable Jewish surroundings, and it's going to be a global multi-ethnic movement. So be ready to cross boundaries and to lay down your life and to bring this good news to all kinds of people. And then you think about that parable, the the good steward. And you think about God entrusting us with, with resources and with gifts But think about the sacred trust Jesus is laying into the hands of his disciples and through his disciples, us as the church. Look, it is your responsibility. This is your sacred trust. This is my stewardship. I'm giving you my mission. Now take it out into all of the peoples of the earth. And of course, this would require the kind of trust that Jesus taught his disciples about in that exorcism fail, where they would be taught to trust God to do the things that only God can do. And so Jesus has been training his disciples all along for this mission. And now the time has come. He says, look, now it is your turn. He says, up until this point, I've been doing the primary work. You've been watching me. You've been learning from me. But I have been training you. And now is your time. And now is your moment. Now I need you to take this message out from this space and start telling everyone about it. And what's fascinating is that the disciples did just that. They go into Jerusalem, and they preach the good news there, and then Judea and Samaria. And then they start moving the gospel, even in the first century, to the uttermost parts of the earth. But then that first generation of believers dies off. And there's a new generation that's raised up. And for them, after the death of those first leaders, it now becomes their time and their moment to take this gospel forward. And every generation of the church that has existed since then has had their time and their moment to take the gospel to their particular place, in particular ways, in concrete ways, so that people in their communities can know the good news about this Jesus. And this right now, 2020 in Sierra Madre, is our time and our moment, to leverage the resources that God has entrusted us with in order to bring this good news to Sierra Madre and to the San Gabriel Valley, and then through this movement to other communities in LA and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the call that Jesus has put on his church. And this means at least this. It means that every church if it is faithful to its master will be engaged in mission. It has been said that it's not so much that God's church has a mission but that God's mission that he's been about for since since the fall of Adam and Eve God's mission has a church. We have been called into being to participate in God's mission in this world. We cannot be content simply, you know, developing communities that are comfortable and that are nice for us and for our preferences and our likes. We have always got to ask, how can we be reaching the next generation? How can we be reaching the current people in this cultural moment? This is an important question for the church to ask. You know, a church just can't be stagnant. You know, one of my favorite stories that I've heard that I think illustrates this, one of my favorite little kind of quotes, comes from this guy named Larry Walters. And Larry Walters is from kind of around the area where I grew up in, in Long Beach. And Larry Walters, he he had always dreamed of flying, but he could never get into the Air Force because he had trouble with his eyesight. And so at one point in his life, he took matters into his own hand, and he went to the local supply store, and he brought 45 weather balloons and some helium bottles, and he brought them back, and he tied the weather balloons to his Sears lawn chair. He got his camera, packed up some beer and some sandwiches— blew up those things, and he tied the, the balloons to uh, a, a rope that was tied to the back of a pickup truck. And he was going to, you know, inflate the balloons and kind of go up about 30 feet, and then he brought a pellet gun so that he could start shooting the, the balloons, and then he could come down. But it turns out that when his friends cut the rope, uh, he went up not to 30 feet, but to about 1,000 feet, and he drifted into the... Uh, corridor of the Los Angeles airport where airplanes would fly in. (laughs) By then, he was too terrified to start shooting balloons. (laughs) So he had to just sit up there with his sandwiches and beer. And... uh, (laughs) Ultimately, he got some courage and started to, you know, shoot some balloons because he thought, I'm going to die up here. He gets down and uh, actually on his descent, he gets caught in some uh, telephone wires or some electric wires in a Long Beach neighborhood and caused a blackout in that whole neighborhood. (laughs) He was arrested. And as he was being taken off to the police car, a reporter came up to him and said, Larry, why did you do it? And here's what he said. He said, well, a man just can't sit around. (laughs) I love it, don't you? A man just can't sit around. And listen, a church just can't sit around. Like a church can't be content to be where it's at. And we are not content to be where we are at as a church. You know, our church has grown older for too long. We've gone smaller for too long. We are very monolithic in way too many ways. And God is calling us more and more in the years ahead to become something different, to become a force in this community that is reaching people who are far from God and bringing them into a relationship with Jesus and being transformed. And, you know, if you ask me, what is this whole capital campaign about? Well, yeah, we're doing budget expansions. We're also doing building renovations. But ultimately, all of this is in the service of the mission of God. Now, there are so many things you can invest in. You know, you can invest in your kids' education. That's great. You can invest in vacations, in your retirement. You can invest in a new home or a new countertops. You can invest in all sorts of things. But I just want to encourage you if you're a follower of Jesus, you will financially invest in the mission of the church. And God's mission is carried out through the local church. You know, it's been said that the local church is God's plan A for mission, and there is no plan B. Where is it that people are baptized, and where are they made disciples? Where are they taught to obey all things? that Jesus has commanded them. It is in a community of discipleship to Jesus. It is in a local church. And so what we have been asking you to do over the last several weeks, it's come to a climax here this morning, is to pray very intentionally, God, how would you have me make a strategic investment in this local church and in the future that God has given to us, and in this specific particular plan that we have to kind of take the first step in moving forward? And believe me, this really is just a first step. There will be many more steps ahead. But this morning is kind of a new beginning for us as a church. Father, we thank you so much for the way in which you have used this capital campaign in the life of our church. You have done, you have truly done above and beyond all that I could have asked or thought. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the faithfulness of so many people in this room who have stuck through this church through so many years, uh, some years that were fruitful and others that were very difficult. And they stayed, many people, because of their hope of what you would do in the future. And we thank you, oh God, for the ways in which you are moving among us now. And we pray that you would use these gifts, that you would use this commitment that we make today in order to further the work of the gospel in the years ahead. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.